You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. A big question, especially as the big tech giants sell off today and exert an incredible amount of control over markets, is how much control should they have over the tech space? How big should they be allowed to get? And weighing in on that is Tim Wu, professor of law at Columbia Law School, also a contributing opinion writer at The New York Times, author of a new book, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. And just if people don't know who you are, uh, your background is tremendous. You've worked in the White House. You've worked at the Federal Trade Commission. You've been a, a law clerk for Judge uh, Posner and uh, Justice Breyer. So uh, can we just start with why did you write this book now? Uh, I think the time has come to, to start really engaging with these questions again, age-old questions about how the U.S. economy is structured uh, and how uh, much monopoly and oligopoly we allow. We faced these questions before, 100 years ago. I think it's time to face them once again. Is there a difference between a consumer and a citizen? <laughs> uh, well, they're you know, technically the same people, but I, I think that we have more interests than just uh, our, our identities as, as, as consumers. In other words, I think some of the reasons you might want antitrust enforcement uh, are citizen interests, uh, the, the political stakes of, of too much private control over political outcomes. Well, yeah, that was one thing you sort of drew a parallel between uh, monopolies and fascism, and that basically democracy depends on a certain sort of equality of businesses. Can you explain? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, this is a historic, I, I didn't say every monopoly is a fascist uh, enterprise, but <laughs> there, there is this, <laughs> there's this dark history, I think, where countries allow too much domination of, of the economy by monopolies, too much power centralized in private companies, have shown themselves vulnerable to, 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 to dictatorship. Um, you know, the most strong examples were Italy and, and uh, Germany in the 1930s. And I think when people get really angry, if, if, if their needs aren't met, they feel that the economic system is completely unaccountable, they start turning to stronger uh, uh, and more radical leaders. And I, I'm very worried about the politics of our time going in the same direction that, that we saw in the 20th century. Do you see a time when there will be government action to break up companies such as Google and Facebook? Uh, I, I think we're due. <coughs> um, there hasn't been a major case in, in uh, more than 20 years. And it was once an American tradition that uh, 
when you have a dominant monopolist uh, a company that dominates an industry like uh, Microsoft, AT&T, uh, Alcoa, Standard Oil, you, you go back that the Justice Department would take a run at them. Uh, they didn't always win, but they broke up a lot. So I would imagine we are due. So I just want to push back a little bit because you talked about how uh, big corporations can kind of exert their power over the political scenario in a disproportionate way. Someone could argue that actually they could also exert their power, uh, you know, in ways that go against the political establishment and have a lot of power, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, reducing greenhouse emissions, which is what we're seeing, or whether it's increasing uh, diversity among staff. So, I mean, there's a flip side of that, too, no? Yeah, no, I, I hear you. It just depends on what kind of government you believe in. You know, whether you think that uh, the decisions should mainly be made by private industry, which even if they make good decisions, you still have to wonder why is it their decision, or if you essentially believe in democracy, which is uh, more to do with, with, obviously, with representatives making those decisions. So how did we get here? And, and, and how does sort of a regulator or a judge determine when a, a business has gotten too big? Yeah, so I think we're in a, there's been a 40-year uh, campaign to weaken and feeble the, the uh, antitrust laws. Um, it has more success uh, with the Republican Party, but has sort of spread to some degree to both parties. And, uh, you know, it was on, a, on it rode the back. Uh, it's associated with uh, Robert Bork, the famous almost justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, and who was Borked. Yes, who was Borked. Borked. Um, but his actually, his effect was stronger than many actual justices. Uh, because uh, you know, he, sat, he kind of rode the, the coattails of a movement that said the judiciary is out of control and, you know, Roe v. Uh, he didn't, opposition to Roe v. Wade, a lot of other things, and said we need to, uh, st and I think what we've done is, is destroy something that was once very important to the U.S. economy, which is uh, supervision of excessively sized companies and, and, and breakups when necessary. As part of the theme of your book, the Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. You write, in a way, about uh, Louis, Louis Brandeis, uh, former justice on the Supreme Court. I'm wondering if you could just tell people who he was briefly and why you brought him into this discussion. Yeah, so Louis Brandeis is uh, probably most famous as uh, a justice Supreme Court. He was also a key advisor to Woodrow Wilson in the 1912 campaign. And I think he is important for his vision of what the economy uh, could or should be. Uh, he, he saw the economy in, in deeper terms. He thought the point of a democracy was uh, the flourishing of its citizens and, and human flourishing more generally. And so he said, you know, we really have to realize the economy is the biggest factor in most people's lives. And they need the economic liberties, economic securities before this will be a place that people really want to live. And sometimes I think we've lost sight of that. We're sort of obsessed with numbers and, you know, did the Dow go up today or down? And, you know, what about what the economy does for what it means to be a citizen of this country? So which mega mergers do you see as being the most dangerous currently? Uh, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of mergers we shouldn't have let happen. Uh, I take the airline industry as a good example. I don't think, uh, uh, other than shareholders of airlines, that, that that's been particularly good for passengers, just have three major uh, airlines. A huge number of hospital and, and pharmaceutical mergers, I think, have led to higher prices, worse care. Um, in the tech sector, I, I don't think we should have let Facebook buy all its competitors. I think we've seen the fallout from that uh, politically, uh, security-wise, from having one company with so much domination over social networking. Um, uh, you know, every day there's a new scandal. So I think we see the curse of uh, business across the economy. And, you know, I'm not saying something radical. I want to return to sort of 
the American tradition of, of competition being our guiding light and uh, decentralized power uh, being how we run this country. Uh, just to stick to a couple of luminaries, perhaps, just so that uh, we get a little bit of detail about uh, how you kind of frame the book. Um, John Perry Barlow. Yes. Yeah. People yeah. may not remember him, but I, I've got the gray hair to prove it. Um, he really described a lot of these situations back in the 1990s. Well, John Perry Barlow was uh, a figure, embellic of, uh, you know, he sort of symbolized the 1990s, where everyone assumed that since tech was so different, that we didn't need the old rules. You could never really have a tech monopoly. Uh, everything was kind of in cyberspace, and, you know, we just need to throw everything out the window. And I think that approach led us to ignore some of the more obvious anti-competitive harms that, that were uh, starting to appear. It allow, allow, it, we basically let the tech companies have something of an immunity to the antitrust laws for, uh, for a decade. And I think now uh, we're reaching a time of reckoning. So I have to wonder, you know, at what point is bigness okay? Right. So how do you determine whether uh, something is uh, not too big uh, or, or too big? I mean, it's sort of it's, it's, it's an important point, especially in a global world, albeit perhaps less so uh, now than it was a year ago. Uh, and, and there are big companies globally that are going to potentially knock others out of the out of the water if they're not big enough and have economies of scale. Yeah, no, I think that is, is definitely one of the hardest questions. And I don't think it's right to just say, well, this company got big, so we better break them up because they're, they're big, even though I called, the, even though I called the, the book The Curse of Bigness. Uh, on the other hand, I think with the benefit of, retrospect, of retrospective, you can see how important it is to challenge companies that are no longer able, even though they're big, to compete on the merits, but have resorted to increasing numbers of uh, abusive, anti-competitive uh, measures. Um, you know, take IBM in the 70s, AT&T in the 80s. They were huge companies. And thank goodness, I think we challenged them and broke up AT&T because uh, they had become almost like a, a, a parasite on the, you know, they had started to block and control so many lines of conduct that no entrepreneur could get started. So when you have a part of the economy, you know, that just has started to stagnate uh, because of, you suspect, a company that is immune to competition, and has began to suppress all its competitors, that's when it's time for antitrust to take action. How close do you think we are to a dangerous tipping point with respect to how big the biggest companies have gotten? I think we're there. I think that we are in an unprecedented level of concentration in the U.S. economy. I think we've had a decline in entrepreneurship and innovation. And I think we're going to begin to suffer seriously um, from all kinds of sectors becoming places that new companies just can't get started, not to mention the effects on employees and, and suppressed wages. So I think we're there. That's why I think there, I think some of the populist political movements are actually reflecting the concentration of the economy, reflecting a sense of powerlessness among the middle classes. And um, the historic trends all suggest that the moment has come to question whether we've let uh, the private sector become too concentrated and too unaccountable. Thank you very much for being with us. Tim Wu is a professor of law, Columbia Law School. He is also the author of the new book entitled The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. And whatever your perspective, it is worth reading because it enjoins the debate that affects everybody's life and business. Tim Wu, thank you very much for being here. 
Long Island City as one of two new headquarters. And the big question has been, how much will this impact the commercial real estate market in New York? Joining us now, Leslie Wallman Himmel, co-managing partner of Himmel and Maringoff Properties, uh, focused on New York real estate. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. So let's just start there. I mean, do you think that this is going to have a material positive impact on commercial real estate prices, both in Long Island City as well as elsewhere in this in, in, in uh, New York? Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, Himmel Marigoff Properties, uh, we buy office buildings in Manhattan and the boroughs, and we've had a partnership for 34 years. We purchased a full square block in 1986, and it, with the theory being buying in emerging neighborhoods, people in this last week have been saying, you were so smart. That's a long time ago. Thirty-four years ago. in Long Island City. No, yes, it's yes. A, it's a building at uh, thirty-four hundred two Queens Boulevard, and um, I can't tell you how many phone calls we've gotten saying you're just such a, you, you know how to buy an emerging neighborhood. Well, Amazon, the Amazon effect is going to be a multiplier effect. It's fantastic that they're going to add twenty-five thousand jobs, and they picked Long Island City. We've been thinking for the last three decades as we've watched the area emerge, but very slowly compared to Jersey City, Hoboken, Brooklyn, that it should be developed is so close to Manhattan. You go right across the, the 59th Street Bridge, you go right through the tunnel. Um, the, the big story here as you watch tech stocks are going down, but the tech companies are expanding in New York. New York is the greatest city in the world to help build careers. Amazon, Google, Facebook, they're all growing in New York. And it's definitely going to increase values in Long Island City, but that's it should have happened a long time ago. Now, you have been uh, part of, I don't know, how many, maybe 50, 100 transactions at least in, in New York. And I mean, value over $2 billion. What are the rents going to do in Long Island City? Because I was looking at a report having to do with rents in Seattle, right, to kind of measure another city that is obviously went through the Amazon transformation. Uh, last year, rents in downtown Seattle were about $42 per square foot. Now, if you go back to 2009, I understand there's regular inflation and so on, they were 31. So we've got about you know a $10 increase per square foot. Do you see that same magnitude of change coming to Long Island City and indeed even to Crystal City uh, in Washington, uh, across the Potomac from Washington, where they're going to put their Northern Virginia headquarters? The, the simple answer is yes. This is a simple supply and demand uh, equation. When you have an expansion of 25,000 workers and many residents that are going to be living there, you have the multiplier effect that you're going to have more people living there, more people working there. Um, we needed that. If you look at the buildings, IDCNY, Factory, Fauci, uh, Related has two properties, Paragon Blanchard, it's been a little quiet in the office market in the last 18 months. People bought in anticipation of being able to, buy, to attract the TAMI tenants, um, paying <laughs> mid to high 40s. That hasn't really happened. I, Amazon coming to Long Island City is going to help attract many other offices. Um, we bought a property, just to be granular, a year ago in Long Island City on the right over the bridge, thinking we were going to make it into, again, a TAMI, you know, tech advertising, media, and internet building. And we decided it was better to keep it as a hybrid between industrial and office. Um, the reality is that's another emerging area, that last mile distribution, many companies that 
no longer are retailing or actually selling online. So that's going to be expansion, and the boroughs are going to be for sure fraught with expansion in that narrow market as well. So when I take the 7 train out to Queens and I go past this area, one thing that I see is just cranes everywhere and lots of buildings going up. And, you know, a lot of people have said that there has been an overbuilding uh, to a certain degree. Does this even it out? Oh, for sure. Um, I, I think, it, you know, not only on the, the residential, you saw the, the buildings going up like mushrooms. <laughs> they were just expanding. And I think a lot of people got awful, awfully lucky. Um, although I do think that TF Cornerstone, who's going to be developing a lot of the Amazon, they were pioneers in buying all along the waterfront like 15 years ago and worked with the city to um, develop it. Okay, one other thing, infrastructure, right? I mean, how important is it to improve the infrastructure, whether it's the subways, whether they're parks? I mean, there really aren't that many parks in Long Island City. There's the waterfront, that's it. I mean, how important are sort of these aspects that perhaps the city won't have that much more money to pay for because <laughs> Amazon isn't paying them that because they're getting a tax break? Well, there's always the ferries. That would be a great thing. They, it's I mean, right across they, the right, river. But it hasn't necessarily evolved yet to the point where it's as easy as a subway. So what, so how, I mean, how much do they have to develop that and who's going to pay? For sure, the infrastructure needs to be improved. Um, I think, though, with all the residential buildings that are there, you may have a lot of people who prefer to walk to work. Um, those who are going to come from Manhattan, you do have great subway access. And, um, you know, there's always Uber. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point because there are going to be so many other businesses that profit from having such a huge anchor in the neighborhood, right? We used to think of anchors as being big department stores in malls, but now you're going to have all the ancillary services and products and companies that are going to be supplying not only Amazon, but the people that work at Amazon. Does that mean that this is going to be a much longer kind of increase in real estate value? Well, clearly, if you walk around Long Island City, there is very little retail, Correct. very little street retail. Um, I've I spent a lot of time actually on weekends walking neighborhoods. Surprisingly few restaurants, surprisingly few venues. There, there is starting to be that um, more retail stores, and you're going to have for sure restaurants, coffee shops, etc., all growing. And it's like you have in Brooklyn. So, how much will the trickle out effect be? away from Long Island City to other parts of uh, the boroughs in, in Manhattan. Real she wants to know what's next. What's the next area well, I, that no one's yeah, discovered? that's great. What's next? But also, you know, does this sort of boost the whole market? I think the Bronx is next, Staten Island for last mile industrial. A lot of companies that need um, online, if you will, distribution centers, that's going to be a huge expansion. And I think I said last time you guys interviewed me that I think Midtown East is next. It's so out, it's got to come back in. See? We're That's so what out. happens. We're, we're in Mitanis, oh, full not, disclosure, so we're, we're never, out. We're no, way out. No, we're never out. <laughs> it's just about the perspective. Anything else you want to offer us in terms of Amazon? Anything we should that real estate investors should not get ahead of themselves when they hear Amazon's going there? Give about I, I think it's seconds. all good news for, for New York. Um, and, you know, we, we all have to be mindful, though, not to get 
too euphoric on news like this because reality of, of numbers are numbers. Um, you know, New York City's right. interest rates are going up and, and vacancy is around 10% here. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, I think the, the interest rates, I know you did a story on that before, are, are have a huge impact on pricing. And uh, we're lucky we refinanced all of our properties in the last few years. Locked in 3.5% rates and now we're looking at 5% rates. So Well, we're, wait we're, until the check clears, I guess, is a... Good, a, a good motto. Leslie Wolman Himmel, thank you very much. A co-managing partner, Himmel and Meringoff Properties, talking about Amazon.com. They're coming to New York. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, we want to learn more about the decline in value of cryptocurrencies. And here to help us do so is Lionel Laurent. He is our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and he knows everything about the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. All right, joining us from our London bureau. And of course, you can follow Lionel on Twitter at Lionel R.A. Laurent. All right, why is Bitcoin below $5,000 right now. It's down about 3%. And this decline in cryptocurrency started last week, and it's continuing. It's like at a 13-month low. Why? Well, hello, and thank you for the intro where you said I knew everything about Bitcoin. I actually don't know its, its, its value, its price. No one does. And you say the sell-off began last week. Maybe the most recent one did. But the bigger picture is it began this whole sell-off at the end of last year. This whole year has just been one long, massive decline. And to understand why, we have to understand why it blew up in the first place. And it blew up because, essentially, it was sold as uh, a new, great, utopian, disruptive investment that would take over the world of payments. It would become the new gold. It would essentially, you know, make everybody rich. Uh, and it would be, you know, there for the taking for a retail crowd while all the sort of fuddy-duddy bankers would sit back and not get it. And like most dreams, you know, myths, uh, you know, sales pitches, it hasn't come true and it stopped coming true. And that's what we're seeing right now. I'm happy to go into all the various things that have happened recently, all the news, the hard forks, the regulation. But for me, the bigger picture is it was a it was a loser, a losing strategy to begin with. Well, let's dig in a little bit to the regulatory or I should say uh, the Justice Department probe into Bitcoin and a number of other cryptocurrencies. There was a story today talking about how uh, prosecutors are homing in on a clutch of cryptocurrencies that uh, potentially uh, they may be alleging work together to manipulate prices last year amid the incredible rally. How much is that contributing to uh, what we're seeing today? Well, uh, honestly, I'm not sure it should be because this was, again, obvious to us a year ago. It was obvious to us earlier this year when cryptocurrencies like uh, Ripple would be, you know, suddenly up, um, you know, an incredible amount one day and then quickly sold off the next. When we saw there were chat rooms where people would pump and dump 
small and new tokens. Um, you know, the news is that the regulators are actually waking up to this and getting involved, right? So the news is they're actually going to spend resources trying to work out uh, what's happened. I think, you know, the fact they are looking at Tether, this kind of, um, you know, coin that was supposedly redeemable for one real dollar, um, and was therefore used as a dollar proxy on markets to buy Bitcoin. I mean, Tether still exists today, right? So perhaps what comes out of this has yet more impact on today's market. But, you know, as a, as a picture, I mean, again, you know, don't, don't want to keep on playing the same music. But, you know, we, we who sort of were skeptical a year ago that these were real markets with real price discovery uh, and with, you know, how, how can I put it, self-regulation uh, are being proven right. Well, you can play the same music, just use a different instrument, Lionel. The uh, question I have is that whenever I ask someone to describe to me in detail, okay, what is Bitcoin and show me how it works, somehow or other, and within the first, let's say, 30 seconds of an answer, the conversation pivots to blockchain, as if somehow, because they're in favor of blockchain, they can kind of downplay the connection to Bitcoin. Have you found that as well? So again, we have to think about this in terms of marketing. Um, you know, when when Bitcoin uh, was going through, because Bitcoin has been around for a while, we, we forget it's been around for basically 10 years. Um, you know, Bitcoin has had these booms and busts before. And when corporations realized that it was not going to be possible uh, to, you know, get uh, banks and regulated entities to deal with it, they began to sell the idea of blockchain without Bitcoin, this idea that underneath it all, there is a totally useful uh, use case, which is, um, you know, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but essentially lots of interconnected databases that would, you know, work in concert and be tamper proof, which again, sounds like a great idea in theory until companies sat down and tried to actually implement it. And if it sounds messy enough to have, you know, a dozen databases trying to work in concert uh, at a company that is just trying to, you know, sell a car from, from A to B, uh, then, you know, yeah, the, the reality was it, it was super complicated. So, uh, you know, Bitcoin is the original blockchain and it is one vision of a blockchain. But, you know, we have seen many, many reasons why uh, this particular blockchain is not at all what it pitched itself to be, which was a kind of perfect, decentralized, uh, you know, tamper-proof, yeah. kind of utopian mechanism for essentially handling payments. Well, it definitely doesn't seem utopian today as it continues its plunge. Lionel Laurent, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, definitely been uh, quite a swoon. It'll be interesting to see what some of those Bitcoin hedge fund returns will be, considering that maybe what if they were leveraged? One concern that has been weighing down on these big tech shares has been the trade tensions with China, right? I mean, that's been one of the big issues. And that sort of brings us uh, to the next topic, which is uh, mergers and acquisitions cross-border. U.S. companies looking to acquire Chinese companies or, uh, or, or, or vice versa. David Willard joins us now, founder and chief executive and managing partner of 52 Capital Partners based in San Francisco and New York. Uh, David, you have a, a lot of experience both in mergers and acquisitions at Goldman Sachs and uh, Cravath Swain, but also uh, with with advising uh, with China relations. And, and what do you see right now? How many calls are you getting from clients concerned that they will never be able to do another cross-border transaction again? <laughs> Those calls happen with greater frequency in this market, Lisa. It is a tense environment right now. The tariffs, the economic sanctions between the United States and China, it's unprecedented. We are in a new normal, I tell our clients. The appetite for our services is interestingly increasing in this uh, tense environment. 
clients have a great amount of uncertainty about the market in China. The domestic regulations in China are more onerous for U.S. multinationals and private investment firms that are looking to deploy capital into China. And with that, there's greater uncertainty. But that being said, we're seeing a lot of clients, a lot of U.S. businesses building a ground game right now. There is optimism that there will be a good probability of a rebound in M&A in 2019. So M&A clients now are building a ground game in anticipation that the regulatory environment will improve. That's a really interesting development we're seeing. What does that mean when you say they're building a ground game? Does that mean they're hiring lots of lawyers? <laughs> Among that, uh, Pim, it's a great point. Among that, a lot of American businesses now in building a ground game are conducting massive amounts of what I call front-end due diligence. Front-end due diligence consists of conducting major reviews of the regulatory situation in China. Deals that haven't been you know, fully commenced are basically necessitating a lot of front-end review and diligence by lawyers, M&A advisors, and corporates. That's a major uh, change in the market from three or four years ago when regulations in China were far less onerous. Um, as a result, it goes without saying, M&A deals now are more expensive. There's a longer lead time to putting deals in place. And with that, the costs of doing business in China and doing M&A um, have gone up. Okay, so can you just give us a state of play as far as how much M&A uh, you're expecting cross-border between uh, with U.S. companies buying uh, Chinese companies and how that compares to the past? I mean, are we seeing a, a material slowdown and do you expect that to continue? It's a great point. And the data is really interesting, uh, Lisa, and I want to uh, mention one point which is this, there is a massive reduction in cross-border M&A with, with China this year. The data bears that out. Interesting, however, today there have been about 80 billion U.S. in M&A uh, with China. That is a massive reduction from 2017 and 2016. But interestingly, the amount of M&A in 2018 surpasses the M&A levels and volumes of 2015 and preceding years. So while there's been a massive reduction uh, prior to the two preceding years on a long-term historical basis, 2018 has actually been quite robust. And so notwithstanding the tariffs, the economic sanctions, the rhetoric, there still is good appetite to find good deals and to get them across the finish line. And that's a really interesting uh, point I want to mention. If someone came to you and said, I'm looking to do a technology deal, particularly in either artificial intelligence or some kind of cyber security industry hmm. in China, would you say, take a number, come back in six months, and then we'll talk? Or would you start doing something now? I would start doing something now. It's a great point. We, we deal with this situation all the time at my firm. And it goes to the point about building a ground game. We don't know when the regulatory environment in China will change. There is a decent probability we'll see in 2019 a softer environment, but that's a question mark. It's important for businesses in America who are sizing up the M&A landscape in China to conduct due diligence now to understand what the risk is that Mofcom or major regulatory agencies in China will step in to block major deals. That's a really important uh, component for deal making today in China, and it's important to start that ground game now. So where, what, which industries are you seeing the most interest in terms of U.S. companies looking to acquire Chinese ones? It's a great point. Software and technology still remain uh, robust verticals, notwithstanding the concerns around intellectual property theft, data privacy, forced technology transfers. We see the headlines. That is still a concern. Uh, so that remains a, a robust part of M&A. 
In addition to that, we're seeing a lot of activity in non-technology verticals, um, industrials, uh, sustainability-related uh, verticals. Those are getting a lot of attention in China. Um, those um, have less of a um, sort of regulatory burden in China uh, for the most part. And as a result, U.S. businesses see those non-technology verticals, particularly in industrials, as really attractive. From a valuation standpoint, too, those industrials businesses in China are comparatively more attractive in this environment. And with that, private equity firms in the U.S. are dialed into identifying opportunities in those areas. Just quickly, give you 20 seconds. Do you still have to know someone in the Chinese government in order to get a deal done? It's a great question. Uh, the short answer is no. Um, I, I believe it's important to have sound advisors in both the U.S. Uh, and China in identifying ways to get great deals across the finish line in China. Um, clearly, uh, the regulatory situation in China is, is fascinating, but uh, not necessary from my standpoint. But great question, Pim. Well done. Thanks very much for being with us and sharing this information. David Willard is the founder and the chief executive and the managing partner of 52 Capital Partners. They're based in Silicon Valley, and they also have operations in New York. Thanks for being here, and thanks for listening. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.